Hi, this is Morgan Michael welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast, where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness. I believe that we all have an innate need to be seen, heard, and understood. When we dedicate ourselves to kindness, the ripple effects in our schools can be life-changing. Through this podcast, I want to challenge you to question your assumptions, amplify your insight, and embrace a willingness to go beyond the status quo in education. Together, let's learn how to make a big impact, one small act at a time. You are in for a real treat. I'm here with Tom Hudock, a successful entrepreneur, nonprofit founder, a father, and business advisor. He is the co-founder of Rethink Thinking, a nonprofit making change in the world of education, and he's also founded Arc Academy School, based on the inquiry-based learning model. You can find him at Tom Hudock, H-U-D-O-C-K, on Twitter and Instagram, and by searching Tom Hudock on Facebook. In this conversation, we discuss actionable ways to rethink education in this very uncertain world, the key to keeping students engaged and passionate about their own learning, how to overcome challenges and fear of failure, whether you're starting a new business yourself or helping students to adopt a growth mindset, the importance of cultivating environments that sustain and support mental wellness. Hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21 day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes and leave a review. Thank you so much. Tom Hudock, thank you so much for joining us on the Small Act Big Impact Kindness Podcast. It's an honor to have you on the show. Oh, the honor is mine. Thank you for having me. So I want to jump right in and and start off by talking a little bit about the current industrial model of education and essentially how it's not really serving our society as it was initially designed to do. So Ben Ki-moon, the diplomat and eighth secretary general of the UN, once said, saving our planet, lifting people out of poverty, advancing economic growth. These are one in the same fight. We must connect the dots between climate change, water scarcity, energy shortages, global health, food security, and women's empowerment. Solutions are to one problem must be solutions for all. So, I know that you've been inspired to be a catalyst for change and to mobilize youth in becoming agents of change, encouraging them to find the paradigm that says that they are power, that they're powerless and to step into a more effective and powerful role in their activism. What makes this a worthy endeavor for you? How can we prepare our children and students for the uncertainty of the future, knowing that this industrialized model of education really does more harm than good as it relates to innovating creative solutions around some of the really big problems? Those are some wonderful questions. Uh, yeah, I think for me, it all started, uh, basically, I have a son who's now 11 years old, but when he was in kindergarten, uh, you know, you drop off in the morning and you pick up in the afternoon and slowly and surely I started to see this life and excitement and this curiosity draining from his eyes. So, you know, I started asking questions because I didn't understand, you know, why that was happening. 
And near the end of the year, the teacher told me that basically he wouldn't sit down for 20 minutes and draw when he was asked to. And I wasn't an educator. I'm still not an educator. And I didn't know psychology around kids and all that. But in my gut, that just didn't feel like the right answer. Like it, you know, if a child wants to move or if a child wants to learn something else, I mean, it's kindergarten for one, but they have some curiosity and they want to follow some of their own direction. And so that's when I started asking questions around the government and teachers. And the answer I always kept on getting was, well, that's the way we've always done it. And for my past as a consultant and advisor, it never really works for me. So that kind of put me on the path of trying to understand why and trying to figure out ways to, you know, change the model, break the model, expand it, look at all all those different things. Mm. And I think that's so important because as an educator, I've fallen into that trap, honestly, myself, where I think there's sort of this perception of what it means to be a teacher and what it means to be a student. And when we don't challenge ourselves to look outside of that paradigm, it can be really constraining. And what we know is that really only a very narrow number of students fit into that model and find success within that model. And so really, we're doing a disservice by catering to that particular group of kids. Why not, like you said, continue to, you know, keep that passion alive um, and nurture it and help children to stay connected to that? Because I think you're right. I think by the time that they kind of get to grade 12 and even into the post-secondary educational realm, if, if that's the path that they choose, often they are just jumping through hoops. They've learned the script that they're supposed to learn in order to quote unquote succeed. And and that's kind of how they leave our school system. And it's sort of sad. Yeah. 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 You know, it's kind of like a, um, you know, kids go through years and years of learning subject by subject, different things. And while there's value in that, there's value in understanding English and math and social studies and our history. Those are all valuable things. But then they get out into the real world and there are no subjects. Mm-hmm. There is nobody there telling them what to do and what to read. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's kind of, I mean, I felt that when I I left. I mean, my mom constantly was talking about how I should go to university. And I was going to be the first person in our family to go to the university. So mm. that was a pretty big deal for them. And yeah, I went to the local university and I got two years into an engineering degree. And I enjoyed it. I mean, I, there was lots that I learned, uh, but there was just something that I that was bothering me. And I, and I felt like mad and confused sometimes because I didn't understand why I got to this place and I wasn't mm. happy with what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And so I quit two years in and, you know, I started my own software company and I built, you know, the second windows based point of sale software in Canada. Wow. I mean, that's dating me a bit, but you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and I did my own thing and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know I was doing an inquiry or I didn't know I was following my passions, but I was finding it, yeah. finding something. And yeah, now I just see, you know, kids, kids need that. You know, there, there is so much in the world uh, that needs to change that needs people to help solve that. Uh, yeah. We need to help kids foster those curiosity and the exploration that they want to find. I love that. And I totally agree. And I think before we even delve into some of the amazing things that you've been doing uh, within our community and and on a national global level, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that, um, even within the context of, of teachers. So 
really uh, developing this entrepreneurial spirit can be super difficult. And honestly, I think most teachers go into education in pursuit of this sense of certainty. Like most of us enjoyed school, we experienced success at it. And I'd argue most of us are not eager to disrupt the status quo because we've, it really did work so well for most of us. So, you know, you get the study hard, good grades, and then you win. But in that more uncertain world and that model that you were alluding to of, well, actually, I don't feel that satisfied and and fulfilled within that that path um what is success and so it really behooves us to change our mindset about education to embrace the certainty or the uncertainty of pursuing our curiosities and even the failure and that knowing that that learning and that innovation can be very messy and difficult and uncomfortable but it's worth it can you speak to that piece yeah, comfortable, uncomfortableness. Um, yeah, and, and I'd almost take a, a sidestep to this. So I, I learned from a, a doctor who's a neuroplasticity uh, doctor, and, and she talks about how people, not even just kids, but people learn through intensity. Mm-hmm. And so when we are intense about something, we learn. And of course, that could be a flip side. You know, if you uh, have trauma, mm-hmm. your body and your brain learn from that, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, but if we make it about education, uh, yeah, we want to find ways to make it intense. And intense not not in a, you know, producing anxiety, but intense as in, you know, when you see kids who are really into play, that's intense for them, right? Yes. They're in there, they're doing it, they're focused, the whole world around them disappears, and they're focused. Mm-hmm. And so how do we reproduce that in education? How do we reproduce that at home? Because, you know, Kids are at home for much of their life. So how do we also help them there? Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I learned was uh, learning is, in, especially in education, is really meant to be more about capacity. So building a child's capacity to learn mm-hmm. and not building the content and stuffing that in their head. Because mm-hmm. I think the stuffing and the knowledge and the logic and all that stuff will come when they find the something that they're going to be intense about. And if they have the capacity to do, to do that, then the world starts to become their oyster and they start to go down their own path. Right. So in terms of capacity, are you talking sort of about this grit or the growth mindset and and that resilience piece? That's definitely part of it. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, when you talk about the brain and how the brain works, there's ways to build capacity for the brain to handle more time to focus and being able to concentrate and all those things. But yeah, capacity is all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Which is which is really interesting, and and I'd love to dig into that a little bit a little bit later as well into the in the conversation. So I would like to switch gears and talk a bit about the rethink movement and the summit, which you've co-created and with uh, Rebecca Kirsten. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so, what inspired you to explore this concept of rethinking this current model? I know you've talked a little bit about it in context, but what took you from being inspired? to actually innovating this movement? Because I think that oftentimes many people can point to issues and problems in society and it's a whole other thing to actually mobilize, take action, create something. So I'd love to know a little bit more about the background, about how you got there. And then also, you know, in terms of the fact that you've really, really championed this student-directed inquiry-based approach. There really is limited adult, I guess you could say, interference. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that as well. Sure, absolutely. So the Rethink Thinking thing started a couple of years ago. And it just happened to be 
you know, I think the right time for everybody who was at the beginning. And so Jeff Hopkins was involved and he's the principal of uh, Pacific School of Innovation and Inquiry. Yes. And Rebecca Kirstein. And so she's a serial entrepreneur and similar to myself. So, and we all kind of came together. And this idea of taking Jeff's inquiry model and seeing, it was actually a test. We wanted to see if we could actually take it outside of the school hmm. system and make it into an event. So it would be fun and it would happen over the weekend. And, you know, so we had 250 kids show up on the first one and we had Sir Ken Robinson come in and do a talk to the kids and yes. the parents. It wow. was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> and yeah, he's just funny. He's, you know, he's incredible. Think, yeah, he's very funny. And, but he gets his point across. Yes. And uh, yeah, and we just had so many kids after come up and say, can you please do this again? Can you please make this a week long? Can you please make this into a school? And that response that we got really showed us that this is needed in some shape or form. Mm -hmm. So we recently ran it again, another 250 kids from, you know, hundreds of miles away and up island and all these places. And uh, same thing, they came up with all these ideas. And so, you know, they have all kinds of ideas that are coming out and when they're giving permission and the adults are there to just facilitate the conversation, mm. not get involved in, you know, the ideas or telling them what direction they should go to, allowing kids to find that for themselves, mm -hmm. man, they come up with stuff that we would have no idea how to come up with. Wow. And this is an age range from, is it grade eight to grade 12 or is it, is it, what, what are the grades for that usually? Yeah. So the summit is grades nine to 12. So nine that's high 12. school here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's so interesting. And I just, and I followed it really closely on social media when you posted and I've done quite a bit of digging into your, um, into the YouTube account that gives a, a bit of an overview of, of what happens there. And you can just feel the energy from the from the students and how excited they are and how pumped. And it's very authentic. Like you can see sometimes when you put kids in front of a camera, they, they clam up. They are so passionate and excited. So I have to say, as an outsider, can you speak to the format of the event and how, how you sort of enable them to gain that agency and to feel excited and some of what they did? Because I saw some of the sketch notes around them producing some ideas around solving some really significant problems as you know, the same ones that, that I mentioned at the opening of the, of this interview and how did you get there? You know, we don't, mm -hmm. <laughs> the kids really do it all. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we provide the safe space to do it mm -hmm. and there really isn't a lot of, um, you know, rah, rah, we don't have, you know, music people and, and charging everybody up and, you know, cause there, there's events like that for kids where they yeah. you know, get them in there and they really charge them up and that's fine. It's motivational yeah. and inspirational, but uh, yeah, we, we really just sort of set the stage and we allow them, you know, giving them permission. We're allowing them to be heard. We're showing them this bit of a process mm. and they come up with 25 great ideas as a whole collective group. Mm. And these are distinct ideas. Like there's almost very little overlap and you'd be amazed with the ideas that get thrown up on the board and like from creating a civilization that can live on the bottom of the ocean hmm. to, you know, what can we do with uh, giving better access to feminine hygiene products? Hmm. You know, like things that are, are really relevant to them or of mm -hmm. interest to them and they get them up there. And then we have a process of walking them through, uh, you know, they have to pick two groups and they have to kind of sit into the two groups for a bit. And then on the second day they have to pick one of the groups 
and then we get them down as close to action as possible. Mm. And really, we just have facilitators there who are, again, just facilitating the conversation, making sure everybody gets heard, making sure everybody's able to put their ideas out there. They're watching for someone who might dominate the conversation or someone who's maybe shy and doesn't want to speak up. And they just, the facilitators just help them bring that out in them. Mm. And then, yeah, and we have a human library. So kids can come and ask questions to these experts in the community. They might have business questions. They might have science questions or history or law or any of these things. Mm. And that's what kids really need. They just need access to information when they need it Mm -hmm. and someone to facilitate, provide them that open space and, you know, they will make it happen. That's so amazing. I love the human library portion. Can you give examples of some of the people that you might have invited in to serve as part of this human library? Well, we had all kinds. Of, and I, I don't even know the list of people. That wasn't my part to uh, work in. But sure. yeah, we had all kinds of people. We had um, uh, artists, we had creative people, we had you know, anybody who was a professional would be, you know, available to be in that uh, library. So, um, and you know what, kids are used to that because they have Google, mm-hmm. and, you know, and yes, there's a lot of not great stuff, uh, you know, when you search for things, but there's also great resources out there. And that's all we need to provide them some resources. You know? Yes. And I think on some level, it's just the difference between Google and a real person too, though, is that you can get sort of, you can get to that gray area and someone can illuminate an issue that you may not have even been aware of and go, oh, okay, I get it and go off in a different direction. So it can be very clarifying to speak to a real person, which is such a gift to provide that. Yeah. And you get that connection and that personal back and forth that you get when you talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. And you talk, when you're talking about kindness, mm-hmm. right? So these people are giving their time and their expertise, you know, for free. They're volunteers and they want to do this. They want to, you know, share their stuff with people who have questions about it. So, you know, there's, there's a fair bit of kindness factor in that as well. Yes. I, I've just loved following this movement and, and I think viewing viewing the inspiring stories that come out of the event. I think it's really encouraging. And I think it's also, as an educator in the mainstream, I look at that and it makes me think, hmm, how can we use more of that type of mobilization within our classrooms? How can we release that responsibility so that they're real agents of change? And in speaking to some of the, um, I mean, I did talk to Jeff Hopkins on the podcast, and then also Trevor McKenzie, who are both real proponents for the inquiry-based model. They really gave some tangible ways of doing that. And and of course, Jeff Jeff has sort of said, you need to go all in. But I think Trevor's approach is, is sort of this more gradual release. And so he's given some examples as to how one could do this within the classroom, which is really, really valuable. Um, I would like to speak a little bit to some of the passion projects that may have come out of the summit. Have you heard from or um, learned of any students pursuing these projects outside of the summit? So what we do is we provide uh, blue paper projects at the end of the two days. Mm -hmm. And then we also provide a a mentorship program after. And so we're just getting started in that and we're scheduling time with uh, you know, the university's uh, business innovation center with a local credit union for financial literacy, uh, you know, the museum, the, you know, Royal Roads University, you know, we've got all these connections and partners and we set up these sessions so kids can, when they have their project, 
decide if maybe they need to go to a little how do we pitch our idea event up at the university and you know then we invite them and they can come if they so choose and learn from you know these experts and then they can start taking the projects a little bit further because you know two days is two days yes some kids have done quite a bit in two days you know i have uh three girls who started they didn't even know each other so they came to the summit didn't know each other came from different schools and they kind of came around the idea of wanting to uh, have kids more involved in politics and voting and understand what all that means. Mm, wow. Yeah. And since then, this was a previous summit, they have grown to five schools. They've got, you know, almost 100 kids that are underneath this umbrella of, you know, uh, their politics uh, agenda. And they've held conferences and they've held um, sessions up at the uh, parliament grounds and They've done so much. There's no adults and there's no teachers unless they actually go out and ask for a little bit of support from one of them, but they're all running it themselves. Wow. That's that's the piece that really shows that kids can do it. Yes. They just need some support and really they kind of just need the adults to get out of the way. Yes. A little bit. Yeah. Yes, I think yeah. so. And I think um, I think some of these students who have the vision have that capacity to solve the problems in terms of making it happen. And so when they come up against those roadblocks that they're going to develop, uh, if they haven't got it already, the ability to to figure things out. And I think that's such a gift to be able to step out of the way and not for not to allow our own fear as adults of their failure to get in the way of them learning, which I think is often what happens when, as parents or as teachers, we go, oh, can't do that. It's too whatever. Uh, it's too dangerous or it's too difficult or it, you know, you're bound to be disappointed. But really it's within that discomfort, as we said, that that, that true learning happens. So I think it's absolutely... A, a fundamental point to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You know what? It's, it's almost not even what they come up with or uh, that they come up with something or that they even produce something at the end. It's definitely about the journey. Yes. And at this stage, you know, middle school, high school stage, it's really about building that skill, that capacity, right. To figure, to help them figure out how to decide and choose the direction of their own learning. Cause once they leave high school, they're on their own, basically. Mm-hmm. And now they can start really making some choices. And maybe they want to go work. And maybe they want to take a year off and travel around. Maybe they want to go to university. But, you know, like for me, I had no, I felt like I had no choice mm-hmm. that I had to go to university. And it ended up not being the path I wanted. Mm-hmm. And I hear that over and over again from adults that, they were either directed or pushed to go down a path and they weren't able to follow their own passion. Definitely. I think a lot of people feel constrained by that and feel sort of shackled like they don't have a choice essentially. So I think that's a really valid, valid point. I want to talk a little bit about about the difficult, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm making all sorts of assumptions here about what, <laughs> what the journey would have been like for you. Um it was probably not an easy road. As I've discovered with my own work with this project, something that I thought would be easy and it would be, you know, maybe successful, quote unquote, right right out the gate. But I think I have learned that there is this resistance, this dip that can make things, new endeavors quite difficult. And I think, like you said, it doesn't matter what the project is, but it's cultivating these skills that allow us to be resilient even when things don't work out the way we initially 
envisioned that help us through and help us apply that to new projects, new endeavors. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you came to creating the Rethink Summit and any of the difficulties, the imposter syndrome, perhaps the feelings of uncertainty <laughs> that that were there alongside you along the journey. Can you share a little bit of those? Yeah, I, I like your idea of the dip. I, I'm, I'd be curious about a little bit more of that, what you found out. Uh, and for me, I think there was many dips, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, when you think about being entrepreneurial or following an idea or a passion, um, yeah, there's a fair amount of uncertainty, right? You mm-hmm. don't know how it's going to end. You can have faith or believe that this is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And that definitely drives people. Um, but yeah, you really don't know exactly how it's going to end up and you don't even have all the answers. And so not everybody's comfortable with that. Uh, I'm not even comfortable with that sometimes when I don't know the answer and I know that I need to know. And yeah, so I I was trying to think just recently actually about what really got us through that. And I think it really, for me, it came down to resourcefulness, Right. you know, so something would come up and we'd be like, okay problem let's figure it out what what do we need to do who do we need to talk to you know what questions and answers do we need to get done so we can move on mm-hmm. and um, yeah I think resourcefulness is is one of them because you know a lot of people would probably say you know well we we stopped doing it because we didn't have the money or mm-hmm. we didn't have the right connections or mm-hmm. you know but uh, you know how many good ideas have have stopped short without people feeling you know like maybe money's not the problem. Maybe I can get around that by doing something else. And, uh, you know, I think there's lots of examples of people saying, I didn't have the time, the money, the resources, you know, to make this happen. Yes. And I think, you know what, I think if we, I think the kids now, you know, especially the ones going through this inquiry process, yes, they will have a little bit more, or maybe even a lot more resourcefulness under their belt. Because right. they realize like, man, I did all this stuff in high school. I failed. I started, I tried a different idea and I figured out how to make it through that. And they will apply that when they become an adult. So I think things are going to be really different when they get older. Yes, I think so too. I, I, I've i heard that uh, you actually had to put on the brakes initially on the Rethink Summit when you were first rolling it out. Is that correct? And and that because you weren't quite ready to release it? Is that is that accurate? <laughs> The, the first one, no, we ran with that one in a very short time frame. Right. I think looking back, it was probably six months. We organized the whole thing and promoted it. Wow. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not recommended. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but the second one, yeah, we, we ran into that as a roadblock. So, you know, it was coming up to November. We changed the time frame and we put it in November. And we were kind of getting uh, responses back from schools that, you know, they were just starting to hear about the summit and it was right. two, three weeks out or students were like, oh, that's nice, but I just found out about it and I already have something going on on the weekend. Right. And yeah, so it was a tough decision to mm-hmm. say, okay, let's postpone and let's do it, you know, five, six months after. And, you know, you're always worried about how are people going to see that? What are people going to say? What are partners going to do? Are they going to bail? Because it looks like, you know, we can't do it. Yeah. All those things. And I'll tell you, um, we changed things over in a matter of days and all the speakers stayed, 
all the partners stayed. Wow. Everybody just said, you know, if you think postponing it means that more kids will show up and this will be better organized yeah. and do it. That's and interesting. Yeah. And so that was kind of a, a good relief feeling of relief and letting yes. that go and going great. You know, people see the value in this and, uh, and yeah, so we postponed it. Thank you for sharing that because I think that's a really important thing for people to know is that, I mean, you're very successful. Jeff's very successful. This project has become a really successful event and and I think it's only going to gain momentum as, as time moves on. But I think this piece about being able to admit like we did not have it all necessarily figured out or it w- it was a faster timeline than we had expected and as a result people didn't have the information that they needed and to be able to stop and to reevaluate and to know that you're you're not going to die in that process but it probably felt like it and it probably felt very risky when there was the potential for people to pull out from to pull their support or to to cancel their speaking engagement and that holds quite a bit of risk. So I think it's good for people to hear stories like that and to know that there's something on the other end that that leads to success. And I think if you were to maybe charge ahead, it may not have been as successful. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the the right decision at that time, even though it was hard, really hard, was to postpone it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think about that a little bit in the context of how you're teaching kids. So Sir Ken Robinson has said, we stigmatize mistakes and we're now running national educational systems where mistakes are the worst things that you can make. And the result is that we're educating people out of their creative capacities. So it's important for us to support children through quote unquote failure and working hard to cultivate environments in which they feel that they're able to share both their bad and their good ideas. And we know that for every 10 bad ideas, there might just be one good one. And if we cut students and employees down for all their bad ones, or maybe their shortcomings, we really condition them to stay quiet, to refuse to share in the fear of ridicule or rejection. So that kind of environment where creativity goes to die is not really what we want to promote, but it's sort of what happens as a byproduct. So I'd love to know how we cultivate an innovative culture in our schools, in our workplaces, in our communities, where people feel safe enough to be themselves, where they feel safe enough to contribute in an authentic way. And I mean, from from what you've done here with the team at Rethink, that's what you've cultivated within your your dynamic. And I'd love to know how to apply that on a broader scale. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice to (laughs) have more of us in society thinking innovatively, right? Like, yes, there's just so many, so many problems and so many things that could be solved and and people supported and served. Um, Yeah. I just feel like that's probably a really good core piece for me is that I really want more people to be on board with these things Mm -hmm. on board with I don't even look at it as failure. I just no. like us postponing the summit. I didn't even see that as a failure. It was just, no, this is the better option. Yes. Right. And it was yes. just a matter of showing other people that this was actually the better option. Yes. And uh, yeah. And the whole failure thing, uh, I guess it's a culture yes. piece and, and scarcity and, and worry about, you know, failing and how people would see you and perceive you. But uh, um, yeah, I, I guess I can only speak to it for myself and uh I find it's all resonates for me because it's all about self-learning mm-hmm. and, you know, something will come up and I will, I'll be sitting in my car and I've had to do this recently because we're starting a school yes. and I just had to sit there and go, okay, what's going on for me? 
you know, am I feeling this way because I'm, you know, scared of what might happen? Am I thinking, you know, yes, I can handle this and what do I need to do? And so there's a lot of that more self-awareness piece, I think, Mm -hmm. that goes along with innovation. And I I know a lot of people talk about innovation as creativity and ideas, but I really think that comes from within. Yes. Right? And the better we know ourselves and the better we're comfortable with ourselves and, you know, the self-efficacy, then the better we'll be able to handle these situations when they come up. I agree. And I think that self, that self-understanding allows you to override the fear piece that tries to shut you down when you come up with these scary ideas, which, I mean, I'd love to dig into ARC, the middle school that you're, you're creating. And, and I believe that next year you'll open your doors in September 2018. Is that correct? You bet. Yeah, which is really yeah. exciting. So I would love to hear more about it, the inqu- inquiry model that you're using, and and a little bit about what you're doing and why you're doing it. We are doing a ton. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's been uh, like drinking from the fire hose. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's lots of like policy and governmental bodies and everybody's got to you know, a, a rule or a regulation that you need to follow. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, aside from that, because that's just stuff that you can always handle and you just deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like the vision of being able to, you know, take, we're taking Jeff's uh, inquiry model from mm-hmm. his specific school of innovation inquiry and twisting it and manipulating it to work in a middle school. I mean, these mm-hmm. kids are younger. They don't have the same autonomy and, and age to be able to go off on their own and do these things. Um but yeah, so how do we how do we do that? So we've got a great team of educators uh, that have basically serendipitously come together. Uh, you know, we didn't really search for any of them. They just happened to come to us and meet along the way. And then we're like, this is the team. Yes. And uh, yeah, and they're some great people. Like, you know, they're compassionate about this stuff. They, they definitely see the value of doing inquiry learning and uh, the amount of effort and try and the you know mistakes that we've already had along the way mm-hmm. of whoops that didn't work so let's try something else yes. um you know it's uh we're living and breathing the inquiry that we want to actually teach and i from my understanding people the students elect to be there is that correct and and sort of what what is the number of students that you're aiming to have at the school next year yeah, I think with the with an inquiry model, you don't want to be too small, mm-hmm. and we don't want to be too big on our first year either, because mm-hmm. you know we want to be able to be successful, and if we have too many moving parts, we won't be. So yeah, I'd say like a twenty to thirty kids would be a great start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I think so, and and then that way you're able to give them enough enough attention to be able to really delve into their interests, but at the same time to have enough diversity that it's not the same five kids having the same five conversation. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. I think that's so exciting. I can't wait to hear more about it and, uh, and to follow the journey. Where can people learn more about it? Well, right now we are waiting for uh, ministry approval to be able to promote the school widely. Yes. Right. So uh, right now we just have a website, which yeah. is arcacademy.ca. Okay. And uh, we'll also have a Facebook page and groups and those kind of things showing up as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, we've already got a set of families. You know, we've got uh, Fortin founding families who have uh, 
contributed and invested and put their time and energy into this already. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and we've got another 10 on our list that are interested in coming to the school. So yeah, this is this is happening. It's very exciting. Would you say that it's it's really a spinoff from the Rethink the Rethink Movement and Summit? Would you say that it's uh, sort of a response to that student that student desire for a longer summit, basically? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if we go through our uh, you know our documents and everything, it was we basically had a three part plan, and the first part was the summit. You know, let's show that this works outside in a in an entertaining sort of weekend. Mm-hmm. And then the second phase is, you know, let's bring this out to more kids, which is through a school, mm-hmm. right? Because now we're talking inquiry to kids all year long. Yes. And then our third piece to that phase is now let's have many of these schools start popping up yeah, and start networking them together so that kids, when they come up with an idea and they put it into their portfolio, that's, you know, able to be have mentors and other peers join in with that. And now we start to have this network effect of kids and their ideas and the collaboration that can go on. Wow, that sounds really exciting. I wonder how your work as a if correct me if I'm wrong, you were in marketing previous to to these endeavors. Is that correct? I've been in marketing and business consulting and a couple startups myself. So yeah, yes. And so I mean, human psychology and keen observation and creative innovation are really important for that type of a field. What are you noticing in terms of the shifts of how the world works and what we want and and this general shift from the mass market to this micro market based in the fringes? So I, I guess I mean that in the context of education. What you're providing here is is a is a market for these individuals who have who are searching for an alternative essentially so would you say that your background has really enabled you to see that need yeah that's a good question i guess uh yeah it probably would have um never actually thought about it that way but uh yeah i mean my my past has been a very varied path of you know squiggly lines getting to where (laughs) i'm at today and uh yeah i guess i see that there's value in that yeah. Right. Because I've now brought expertise from all kinds of different areas. And that's, yeah, basically allowed me to further things faster and, and more uh, accurate and with more people and building community. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think more, more kids need to have access to a variety of things. I think so too. Um, yeah. I know that we've talked a little bit about Seth Godin. Um, have, are you a, a follower of his? And have you, has he been an influencer? to you in terms of how you've you've been challenged to look outside of the standardized approach to education? Absolutely. The purple cow yeah. and his blog, yeah, he has a very unique way of seeing the world. Yes. And I think just in that, he's pushing the boundaries of how people can see the world and change and, and look at things differently. So yeah, I love the guy. Me too. I think I've been very, very in- inspired by his his education manifesto as well, which is actually a free document. It's a free ebook online, and you can search it. And it's just it's such an incredible piece of inspiration, really, because you it does it stretches your mind to think a little bit beyond what education was first designed for, which is to create these factory workers who were obedient and able to stay seated for long periods of time and do really boring work. And so when you think about it in that, in that sort of, in those kind of terms, it's, 
it's mind boggling that that would still be this, this question of obedience and sitting still like your son was told he couldn't do. It just doesn't match the real world. So, and it doesn't really match how children learn. So for me, that's been a big point of realization and, and has been a big motivator to sort of go outside the certainty and the kind of teaching that I was accustomed to when I went through school. So I, I would agree. It's been a big, a big push. I would like to talk a little bit before we move on to the rapid fire portion of the interview. I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, your more recent speaker, Kevin Briel, on the message about mental health. His TED Talk is incredible. And I'm really interested in the current mental health crisis because I think it's permeated the lives of just about everybody we know, you know, either directly or through association. Can you give listeners a little bit of background on Kevin's message and how important it is that we build authentic connection through deep and meaningful relationships? The kind that stretch beyond the perfect versions of ourselves uh, that we post online or in, you know, in, in person. Um, but that really we we dive into our vulnerabilities that make us human, that piece that we're all really looking for in one another. Why is it important that the mel- mental health discussion be front and center in education and in an event such as the Rethink Summit where students are really, youth are really the primary um, people who are there? Mm-hmm. Well, this kind of goes back to, uh, you know, that uh, self-awareness, understanding yourself, how you're going to react to different things. When you do react, what does that mean? And, you know, I do think kids resonate with Kevin uh, quite a bit because they're having those conversations. Like my son, who's only 11, uh, uses some uh, emotional words and is able to see somebody and interpret that as what emotions they're feeling uh, quite quickly. And mm-hmm. I never had that when I grew up, like the amount of conversations that we have around not even just how he's doing or how he's feeling. Those are kind of the surface level ones, but, you know, diving deeper and going, you know, how did that feel when that happened? And what do you want to change about that? Um, well, I never had that when I grew up and I talked to a lot of adults that were like, yeah, we never really talked about that very much. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, Kevin, he's, he's got a great message around uh, mental health and he's got a personal story around it. So, mm-hmm. you know, kids can totally resonate with that. And uh, he's, he's really good with the kids. But uh, yeah, the, the emotional piece, yeah, like being able to be heard, mm-hmm. is such a huge thing that is so hard to come by. And uh, I think even just that alone, especially in education, that that sense of feeling safe mm-hmm. emotionally, like physically, yes. You know, so we talk about bullying a lot, but yeah, we emotionally safe as well. And, uh, and that just opens the door to a lot more things. So mental health is a big, big piece of that. And I know it's kind of gotten a little bit of a stigma, I think, with some people, right? Like, yes, you know, it's like mental health and that means counseling and that means you've got problems and yeah. uh, hello, we all have problems. <laughs> like we've all got you yes. know stuff to deal with. Yes. Uh, so let's just get over that and let's figure out how we can help each other. Absolutely. And I think those narratives sometimes that play in our minds are more universal than we think. And I think that's what what's so wonderful about Kevin's message. And he really, his story is really founded in his experience of depression and whether or not we are clinically depressed or not, we all have moments where we feel down and it can be very, very difficult. So I think that message resonates, especially, especially when, when you're in that 
that age category between grade, you know, nine to 12, it's a really difficult time sometimes. And so having that understanding that you're not alone, you matter, that you're not powerless, all of these things really are important, especially within the context of inquiry, because what inquiry asks of our students is to be able to go outside of their comfort zone. And I think that mental health piece is so fundamental that that we really do need to be creating cultures where these students feel safe and significant and as though they belong. And I think that's that's part of it is sort of normalizing these feelings that may be kind of just below the surface and and to give students that breathing room to say, you know what, you're okay and we accept you and and you belong here essentially. So I think I think it's a wonderful thing to have that be an opening message. So as an educator yourself, you probably see a lot of that expectation or that, um, you know, request that teachers are also not just educators, but now they actually have to help kids with their emotions and how they're going through things. And sometimes those things are difficult uh, emotions and very strong emotions, and some of them are coming from home life. Mm -hmm. And that expectation on uh, educators is pretty, pretty high, I think. So um, like for my my upbringing, I was, you know, my mom, I love her to bits, but, uh, you know, she's very critical and mm -hmm. corrective of me. So I grew up with that and a lot of guilt around not saying the right things and, and all that. So that took mm. me years to work through and figure out for myself. And, and that was part of my journey, but, you know, for teachers now to have to take on that role as well, I think yes. that's perhaps too much. Mm, that's an interesting point. That's and it's first of all, thank you for sharing that because I think I think a lot of adults believe that a difficult up upbringing can really only be around the really traumatic stuff and I think sometimes it's 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 like what you said, it's this constant sort of um is you know, just this thread of of whatever you want to call it, like sort of this expectation that that sits with you that that permeates your thoughts that kind of leads you through your life. And so that can be very difficult. But yeah, I think this concept of compassion burnout, uh, because we are, it is sort of expected that we are the counselor. Also, of course, all the normal educational roles that we that we have, but the counseling piece, the, the really tuning into the emotional peace as it results to our students and their and their well-being it's a heavy bag to to carry so I think you're right I think it's important that teachers really practice this mindful um you know lifestyle where we're able to sort of create healthy boundaries and really replenish ourselves before we're able to give and I think that's a big part of the 21 day kindness challenge too is this idea that self-care and self-compassion is a really, really important part of giving because you really can't give in an authentic way if you don't first tune into your own needs and and attempt in the best way that you can to meet them. So I think that's a very important point. Yeah, and that's a, the exact same point that we need to make to parents as well. Yes. You know, like if parents are drained, then they're not going to be able to be there for their kids. And it's really hard, you know, as parents because you're, have a job or two jobs and you're rushing them to school and, and after school stuff. And, you know, there's a lot that parents have to do and, and then to also feel charged enough so you can accept them and be open for when they come home because they're having 
yes. issues at school or something. Yes. You know, that's a lot for parents as well. So uh, I, I really do believe mental health is is something that needs to be fully integrated in our society, our culture, our homes, you know, and not have a stigma to it. Absolutely. I think that's, that is really important. So before we move on to the last portion of the interview, is there anything that you'd like to talk about that you haven't had a chance to touch on? Well, I'm sure we could talk about all kinds of stuff for a long time. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, I really like the the kindness initiative that you're doing. Thank you. And uh, you know, how that works with the summit and and the ARC school that we're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, kindness kind of wraps itself all around all that stuff. It does. And it just shows up in different ways. So you know, I applaud you for, for the direction that you're taking it. Thank you so much. Could you define what kindness means to you? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the first thing that pops in my head is the old adage, uh, do unto others. And that's probably a, a great thing to follow in one's life. But I think it's more. I think kindness is more than that. And so as an example, I, I spend some time walking around downtown and I will, you know, sit next to a homeless person and just talk to them and hear their story. And it goes back to that, you know, being able to be heard. And there's something that rises up in somebody when they they know they're authentically being heard by somebody and they have a conversation and it's just a real, you know, heartfelt, connected conversation. And I think, yeah, kindness is a little bit, a little bit like that, right? Like I think mm-hmm. if we can find a way to hold space for people, that's giving of ourselves, that's giving of our time in a very valuable way. So, yeah, I think kindness is more than just giving stuff. Mm -hmm. I think so too. And I think it's putting our assumptions on hold as well. And, and I think that's what you do by speaking to, to these homeless people. And, and I've actually done similar things where you go, let's just, let's just not have assumptions going into this. And it's amazing what can happen when you, when you drop those assumptions about other people. And I think the judgment, and I think this also goes, uh, makes sense when you're, you're also speaking about conflict with others or or mediating conflict is when really we can seek to have to release ourselves from that judgment it can be pretty pretty incredible what can happen so what book or books have you gifted most often to people oh my gosh that's a good question (laughs) um i read all kinds of sometimes weird stuff so um i have just given a entrepreneur's handbook off to somebody Hmm. I have given uh, Pema Chodron, who's mm. uh, a woman who lives in an abbey. She's a Buddhist monk uh, in the back east of Canada. Yes. And the way she writes, I just find it very easy to read, but it really hits home. And it's really all about connection and empathy. So I've, I've given her book away a few times. What one skill or superpower does a teacher need to lead with in order to be effective? Uh, you know what, I, I'm going to go back to the, uh, you know, learning through intensity and building capacity and not just building content. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think I see a lot of teachers, not to be critical of teachers, I, I mean, content's important, but I see there's an emphasis on content. Mm-hmm. And I think there needs to be an emphasis on how do you help build capacity for that child to learn better and more in the future. So yeah, and how that translates into, you know, a skill or something. That's a, that's a challenging one. And you know what? Maybe it comes back to just being able to hold space for a child. Yes. Allow them yeah. to be heard. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, I also ask, 
what one skill or superpower does a principal need to lead with? And sometimes people have chosen the same, but sometimes it's been a different answer. And I'm interested to know what it is for you. Yeah, I think in the traditional sense of a school, the principal is the leader. Mm -hmm. And uh, so for me, a leader needs to have a vision and they need to be in touch with what's coming in the future and not just, you know, let's deal with what's happening today. And I, I do think principals are overloaded with just dealing with fires today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I do think principal needs to kind of lead that school, build this culture, look towards the future. Where are we going? And allow their, you know, all his, uh, the educators and staff and build them up, you know, make them feel empowered to do the things that they need to do for the kids. Yeah, I'd be true leaders. I think so too. I think that's that's really important. What message or quote would you print on one of those quote cups that are sold in big bookstores that would be read by millions? Hmm. <laughs> That's a good one. I, I I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with uh, don't give up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I think for me that speaks to a lot of things. It speaks to you know getting rid of the idea of failure is a bad thing. It's, it gets rid of um, the thinking of. You know, if I run into a roadblock, I, I'm just going to give up. Uh, it leads to resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always a way. There's always a way around something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think don't give up would be on my mug. Awesome. I think that's a really great way to, to end off. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation, Tom. Oh, thank you. And thank you for doing everything you do. Thank you. This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog, for more information. Now I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.